So the, the thing about Vegemite is it has a, a flavor called umami. Are you familiar with the five basic tastes? Um, let's see, sweet, right, sour, right, bitter, right, salty, right, and umami. Okay. Now, umami was discovered by a Japanese chemist in 1908, and it, it, there's actual receptors on your tongue for umami. What is it? Well, umami is a portmanteau of a, two Japanese words. Uh, umai means tasty, uh, and uh, mi also means taste. So tasty taste is what it means. All right. <laughs> so this Vegemite's tasty taste. Well, see, here's the deal with Vegemite. It's so misunderstood. It's a condiment, right? You put a thin layer of it on your toast with butter, for example, and you get that nice meaty sort of shiitake mushroomy kind of thing going on. You don't take a big teaspoonful like you did the last time we tried to record and we had to stop the recording because you were choking. Yeah, that was pretty bad. That was bad. It, so It did not make me go, ooh, mommy, this is really good. Hi, I'm George Tekmichov with Steve the Big Cat World Champion Anderson. And we're here for another Easton podcast, which will be numbered by our faithful editor, Jay, who never has to edit, but has to figure out what number this thing is. I, I don't think people believe us if we said like, hey, we've been through 40, you know, what, 30, 30, 40 episodes. Yeah, something like and that. And we've maybe made two edits. Well, we've stopped the recorder a couple we've times. We've stopped the recorder a couple but times. But there's never been actual edits. No. We've never like, hey, take that out. Yeah. Hey, uh, we're, we've got a smorgasbord of uh, different topics today besides uh, Vegemite. And, and shout out to our, to our friend Vinny in Australia for the care package of Vegemite and God's gift to people who enjoy chocolate, which is the, the Tim Tam. Do we have any more of those? So here's the deal. I gave a bunch to, as you know, um, we've got some folks here with families. Right. And I'm trying to keep my weight. Are you know, their families as big as me? Well, you got a few, <laughs> but I gave most of them to Nate because Nate's oh, kids. Nate's kids. Yeah, yeah. But and he's our controller of our uh, budget here. He is in charge of the, the budget, but that's not why. Because he's got the greatest kids, so I just figured they should learn about Tim Tams. I, I think so. we're still at our initial podcast budget of like three hundred thirty-four dollars for the equipment, and that's it. You know what I found out today that we can buy headphone mics under the current budget. We just haven't spent the money. Nice. Just got permission. Let's do it. All right. You get on Amazon Prime, we'll go buy ourselves some Sennheisers or something good. I'm down. All right. So anyways, uh, where were we? I was just about to go through what the show... Tim Tams and Vegemite. All right. But more importantly, we've got a special guest coming up. Do we? Yes, we do. Who do we got? We got a special guest. We got the only American woman to represent in Rio. I thought we'd already... uh... No? No. Okay. Yeah. So we're, we're going to hear from our good friend, Mackenzie Brown. Yeah. And uh, she'll be a part of the show. And uh, we've also got a bunch of questions to get to from our faithful listeners. Thank you for both the questions coming into podcast at EastonTP.com and also our uh, Easton Archery, Easton Target Archery Facebook page. So yeah, we've got quite a bit of stuff. We've got, enough, we we got enough stuff to do a decent 40 minutes or so, and that's uh, that's the plan for today. So, um, yeah, so let's just jump in. Jump right in. All right, let's start off with the Facebook questions. Um, and while I'm, I'm going through this first one here, pull up the one from Nikki from the last episode that we didn't have the chance to finish up with because 
She had some good material in there. All right, so first one, Chad Simpson broke out his fat boys over the weekend. You know, we've got, um, what do we got? We got five events? No, not even. We have Marrakech, we got Bangkok, we got Nîmes, and then Vegas. That's that's the indoor season in a nutshell. We have Marrakech, Bangkok, Nîmes, and Vegas. And then, boom, I'll have to get ready for outdoor season. Right back to it, yep. Yeah. So, um, just getting back to that question, Chad broke out his, it's in there. Chad broke out his fat boys over the weekend. Uh, he said he forgot how good they fly. Will there be a 120, 125 grain point option for fat boys in the future? Either way, I'm thinking I'll shoot those. My bow likes that 400 spine. Doesn't, uh, doesn't our good friend, Mr. Menzer make a 125 grain option for the fat boy? Yeah, I think 120. 120. Well, that ought to sort you out there, Chad. Get a pro point. Yeah, we aren't there yet. Pro points. Excellent product. Our uh, regular listener, Sarah. My Hoyt Grand Prix Excel has some nicks in the powder coat style paint. Is there a kind of paint that would work well for touch-ups? So, um, Sarah, that depends um, on what color your Excel is. Uh, and so here's the deal. Most of these are automotive-based or industrial-based powder coat or slash paints. And, yeah, you should be able to get a match. I would recommend, if you've got an auto body shop nearby, go to an auto body shop and have them use their colorimeter to do a match. And then you can go to an auto body store or auto parts store and and find the appropriate color. Otherwise, you can call the folks at Hoyt. Uh, You could uh, email them or call them. I don't know if they have an email address or not that's accessible like our yeah, they do, and that would probably be best because I think if you call them, you wouldn't get an answer right away. They'd have yeah. to go do some research. Yeah, yeah for sure. But yeah, anyway, they'll, yeah. they'll give you an idea what there will the be a contact uh, address on Hoyt's website there, and you can they'll they'll definitely give you an idea of the closest uh, match or color. So that hopefully will help. Um, Chad also is asking: Are full bores gone? And if so, will there be a twenty-seven carbon arrow to replace it? No, full bores are not gone. Full bores are still in the line. Correct. And can you talk Genox versus Supernock 3D Supernock? Pros and cons for 3D or field. All right, so the Genox, uh, and I'm going to presume, Chad, you're talking about the insert type Genox for the unibushing. Mm-hmm. Um, not optimal for super high energy bows. Not really meant to take the super high energy bow. Remember, that thing was originally designed for recurving fingers. Now, the large throat model has been beefed up, but doesn't even come close to the strength or the, you know, the ability to handle a heavy load of the hunting oriented super knock or the target oriented 3d super knock. So, um, it's an order of magnitude difference in terms of how much energy it'll take. And some of these guys who are shooting really, uh, you know, stout 3d setups are, uh, finding that the G knock is sometimes just not quite up to the task. Yeah, if you wanted to use that, I would do a deep six knock first. Exactly. Yep. That's exactly what I would do. Yeah, my I think, yeah, deep six knock or, uh, you know, a microlite or a super 3D. Those would be, yeah, that'd be where I'd go first. So if you've looked at our target catalog this year, you'll notice we've added the metric nomenclature to the uh, knock sizes and stuff. For example, we're talking about a G knock being a four millimeter knock. What are we talking about there? Well, your standard uni bushing or your ACE arrow shaft those have a four millimeter internal diameter. And so we're, we're starting to call out uh, components 
with their metric internal diameter nomenclature to make it easier. Because, you know, we used to have the G and the X and the H and the whatever the heck, you know, diameter standards were used. And that's just confusing. So we're, we've gone with four millimeter, five millimeter, six millimeter. There's also six and a half. So your G knock is a four millimeter. Your 3D super knock, that's a six and a half. Your uh, regular super knock, that's a six and a half. Your uh, advice that you just got from Steve, which is solid advice, is to go with a X knock. Uh, the uh, or a deep, deep six deep knock. Six, yep. A deep six knock. Which is actually a four millimeter, despite the term Correct. six. Yeah, well, deep six relates to its broadhead standard yeah. 632. It's confusing as heck. <laughs> doesn't apply to target archery. It's actually a really good knock, and it is optimized for high-energy compounds. So hopefully that will be helpful to you there. Chad, thanks for the questions. Uh, Steve, Don Turpin wants to know, how do you stay zoned in during target events, as opposed to like 3D style, where you can get a little more time to gather thoughts between targets? night and day difference there yeah i would say it's actually harder for me to stay zoned in for th- in in a 3d style event where it's one arrow per and you might be waiting 10 minutes between targets like or that. more yeah, at some events that can uh how long did you difficult. wait at reading for example how long did you wait between ends um sometimes you're waiting an hour and how many arrows do you shoot two so two arrows an hour it's not it's not usually that long. No, but it you could get, be. Yeah, you get one or two targets like that that, you know, you might have an hour backup. But then you might go and, and shoot, you know, you might have a wide open course after that. So But the um, possibility exists. You've got to be able to ramp up from whatever it is you were doing back to game face. Yeah. That's harder, isn't it? You gotta be able to shoot cold essentially. So um I don't know that I have like a you know, a a trick or anything like that, but for me it is harder in a in a sport like or in an event like 3D, to stay focused and and keep good shots uh, flowing, whereas in in uh, target stuff you're shooting so many arrows that you can kind of get in a groove. So, um, at some point, you know, you just revert back to those very very uh, fundamental basics, and you you keep some patience, and you don't want to just oh it's my turn I'm going to hurry up and get up to the stake and and launch an arrow. You know, you've waited 10 minutes maybe to shoot, so take your time that you're not going anywhere fast. So take your time, make a good shot and get on with it. All right. Sounds like solid advice to me. Rodney chambers. will be shooting super drives again next year for 3d. And he'd like some advice on high profile three fletch versus a low profile four fletch. Uh, so, okay. There's been some guys playing around on, various target and 3d circuits with these configurations and you know uh, there's some general guidelines you can you can look at and say all right this is as a general guideline good stuff to have number one i think some offsets a good idea yeah no matter which one of these two setups you're talking about yep exactly number two clearance is king Mm -hmm. if you can't get clearance no bueno past the cables and over the the hand correct and the other consideration there is which side, uh, which handedness do you have? For example, if you're left-handed, you might want a little right pitch mm-hmm. to let it uh, clear the cable better and vice versa. You might want to go left pitch on your offset if you're a right-handed shooter to get that cable clearance. Yep. And this then- is a really subtle little thing. and you know We're not saying it won't work if you don't have that. That's not true. But every little bit helps. 
Yeah, and when you talk, uh, you know, low-profile four fletch, I think you're better off. This is me personally. I think you're better off with uh, with the high-profile four fletch, especially inside three D. Three fletch, yeah. Especially inside three D. Yep. So you need to get the arrow stabilized rather quickly. You're not shooting very far, um, and it's a large arrow. The Superdrive is a 25 diameter arrow, so. I wouldn't – if it were me, I'd go with the, the high-profile three-fletch. Now, you you don't necessarily need a super high-profile. Um, I tested a vein like two years ago. It was an AAE Stealth Max, like 280. It's not even a three-inch vein. Um, I think we have one of the same profile, the Easton 280 vein. And that actually – that worked very well for me as well. Then I went to uh, Max Hunter, which is super tall, like – 2.1 inches in length and like 580 thousands high. So taller than a blazer, I think. And honestly, I had, I had worse results with something that tall. Um, and I noticed a lot more contact over my shooting hand. So that was kind of an issue, but I wouldn't do something like the, uh, you know, super low profile, like a vein tech, super spine three inch. I wouldn't do something like that. That's, you know, too low of a profile. Especially on a big diameter shaft. The thing you got to remember is that uh, all arrows are going to generate some turbulence. And the big arrow is going to generate more turbulence for its... It's just a matter of scale, okay? So your vein, if it's in the turbulent air, isn't as effective. And so you need a taller vein on a bigger arrow, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. Yep, because it's just, yeah, like you said, just yeah, creates a Other a consideration is where is that space. knuckle of yours? You know, if you're shooting a Matthews, for example, a lot of the Matthews bows still don't have a, much of a shelf. Yeah. And so your knuckle's up there in the path. And, you know, um, as opposed to, say, a shoot-through Hoyt or, uh, you know, one of the what, Bowtech Fanatic type thing, you know, with right. a cage. Um, you know, conversely, you have the Elite, which has a little more of a shelf than a Matthews, but still not a shoot through. So, you know, you don't get the full protection. I would say that you're going to want to find that balance. And, and on a bigger arrow like a Super Drive 25, which is by no means, you know, um, a small arrow, you're going to want to go a little more, a little more higher profile for effectiveness inside 3D distances, particularly. Yeah, I've never heard anyone say, like, well, I have, I have too much fletching on here right now. You know, I don't think there's, uh, a vein that anyone would use unless you're putting five or six of them on there where they would feel like they had too much, but you can certainly have some that are squirrely. And if you don't ever get it controlled, your, your downrange groups are going to be gigantic. And then a, a very related question to this comes from uh, Greg Sammons. Uh, Steve, what vein do you recommend for a six millimeter diameter 3d arrow, such as a hex that will only ever see field points? Um, something like that. I would use, I would use probably like our Eastern Type Flight 200 shield cut. You don't need a gigantic vein with that one. That blazer probably, would work too, though, would it? Yeah, it'd be a lot of vein, you know. Yeah, that's actually more of a hunting rig, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that or like our, our Eastern 230 diamond vein, that would be fine too. Yeah, that shape is good too because you get decent clearance out of that thing. So something like that. Or Flex Fletch in a similar configuration. You yeah, know? Flex Fletch 225 is a pretty good one. Yeah, yeah. So those, those should work. Yeah, that that are you know the the ones I would always put on there is just like our our two hundred inch shield cut, or not two hundred inch, but our we call it the two hundred, which is a two inch. Right. Shannon Turner um, is saying that uh, he shoots a three thirty carbon injection. The only reason I know Shannon is that he is because there's a little photo. So 
I'm not making an assumption there, I don't think. Uh, <laughs> Shannon is uh, shooting a 330 carbon injection for hunting with an additional deep six insert behind the standard insert to increase weight and FOC. Uh, given that the two inserts occupy about two and a half inches inside the shaft, I feel like they stiffen the shaft somewhat in the front because it won't bend as much in the insert area. However, I'm also weakening the spine because of the additional 20 grains added. I haven't found a way to compensate for this in programs such as Archer's Advantage. My groups indicate the spine is not being weakened as much as the program indicates with the additional weight. Is it possible the additional weight in the front is being somewhat negated by the insert stiffening the front of the shaft? If so, do you have any idea as to how to compensate for this mathematically, particularly if I wanted to compute the spine difference of adding a third insert? So, yeah, Shannon, you're right on. It is um, potentially the case that you are mechanically shortening the arrow for practical purposes in terms of its bending by putting extra inserts in there. Yeah, they're not one solid piece, but they're still going to stiffen things up a bit. Um, my advice would be, more or less, within reason, ignore the, uh, the change in weight up to two inserts worth. And then anything after that, you need to factor in as if it were point weight. It's not a lot, and on a carbon arrow... Which as isn't reactive they, anyway. Yeah, as fast as they recover, it's not going to do much difference. So, no. um, it, it's I, and we've talked about this. I would just call it a wash. You know, what you've added into the point weight, you've negated by adding in as essential shank length. So, right. Yeah, just call it a wash and and shoot it. So yeah, the bottom line is, you know, you just don't have to really agonize over this stuff. Yeah, if you. And I did this uh, about four years ago. Um, I wanted to see how this would work out. And I had I had tried some computer programs that were showing that my arrows were weak. I felt like they were really optimally spined. And I was using a stainless point on them. And so I just re uh, reduced the arrow length equal to the shank length in the program and sure enough came out right on so there you go just treat so, it as if it's a shorter arrow yeah you could just take half inch or whatever it is three quarters of an inch off your arrow length and see what your program says i bet it'll come out pretty close sounds like good advice to me um so steve what's your plans for indoor right now as things stand um well we had a, you're a not going little, to maricatch right no nope i'm gonna shoot some stuff more local until january you got a uh you just came off the spots and flakes tournament in uh datas yep that's and yeah. then the next thing you're going to is up in idaho right um or is it the utah open first utah open yep utah open and then and then actually i'm going to uh illinois for the midwest open oh so you decided to go yeah well the Delta decided for me. Yeah, I couldn't. Oh, they, I couldn't change my flight. What did they so. want? They wanted three hundred bucks to change it or something. Or? They wanted. Uh, they would apply my two hundred and twenty dollar flight as a credit towards another one, but with a two hundred dollar change fee. So I said I will not bother because it's you know I don't need the twenty bucks. Yeah, stick with your original plan. Yeah, so bigger prize money available at the other event anyway. Yeah, it'll work out. Just a little more time away, which, whatever. Sure. But, um, yeah, spots and flakes was cool. It, I put a little post up on my Facebook page about, you know, local, local tournament here and, you know, just a regular Saturday. And realistically it's, it's my home club that hosts this tournament. And we had, I don't know how many 
you know, elite level shooters, like top level shooters at this thing. But there was probably 15 of us. You know, it was, there's not a, an entire country that could put up a more competitive, uh, you know, from the top down yeah, tournament true. In, in men's combat. Yeah, Braden Galantine there. It was, it was me, Rio, Logan, Dave Cousins, Braden Galantine, Paul Tedford, Aaron Tedford, Chris Shav. Uh, there's a couple local guys, very good shooters as well. One of them's been in the Vegas shootoff. Uh, Jeremy Terhune, you know, there there was. It's a pretty stacked deck. I mean, the photo we've got the photo up. It's got about twelve or fifteen of us. So, pretty competitive for your Saturday Sunday, you know, local tournament. Our avid listener Andy in Australia says, being that Easton has had the technical expertise to construct a thicker walled thin alloy tube. What are the advent? Yeah, I guess like a you know you could uh, you could describe say a Genesis arrow that way. Yeah, an eighteen twenty. Yeah. What are the advantages that an untapered carbon fiber construction offered over aluminum in a small diameter shaft? So, uh, is it purely stiffness to diameter related? Hmm. What? I'm not sure I understand the question completely, but I think what he's saying is um, we can make a thick walled thin diameter aluminum arrow what are the advantages that an untapered carbon fiber construction offered over aluminum in a small diameter shaft so like purely com- stiffness to diameter related comparing like uh, an acg to say like a yeah 17 18 or an 18 well it's like i mean the main thing is the mass differential for the same spine yeah weight yeah that's yeah. obviously the the biggest difference right there mm-hmm. so and now that the big cat has experienced Tim Tams, has he tried a Cadbury picnic bar? I have not. Nope. All right. If it's so, available on Amazon, I will be doing an order soon. I will order one. Okay. All right. Just on that recommendation? Why not? Yeah. Okay. Cadbury picnic bar. How did you like the Tim Tam? Well, I, I know that Cadbury, you know, the cream egg is yeah, yeah. such an iconic piece of candy uh, come April. Uh, yeah, US. Easter time, yeah. Yep. So the, the Tim Tams are phenomenal. I'm kind of upset you gave them all the Nate. I'm sorry. It was, um, it was actually self-interest because I yeah. would have eaten all of them. Yeah. I, I, how many boxes of those did we get? I kind of am upset that a box didn't end up, you know, just for my personal use. <laughs> I'm I will all take, about sharing with the office, but we're not getting paid for okay, this Okay, so customer service got one. Okay, fine. Nate got the other. And we shared the other. And we shared the others. Yeah, so with Mark. Others. Yep. So, yeah, sorry. It's all right. <sighs> That's why you haven't been talking to me lately. I understand. <laughs> okay. I get it. The Tim Tams. Uh, Richard wants to uh, say hi to both of us. Thank you, Richard. I've only recently discovered the podcast, and within two weeks, I've listened to them all. Oh, you poor bastard. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, oh, my God. He, Why he would came you back, do that? came back to comment. Oh, poor guy. Anyway, he says he's learning an awful lot and enjoying the talks about matches and tournaments, and he, uh, I just don't know. Uh, this seriously raises questions as to your sanity, Richard, but... You're a recreational recurve archer, mostly indoors with about 13 years experience, but still eager to learn and improve. Even though I only shoot about 34 pounds, doing fairly okay at indoor tournaments, I have the feeling I miss some smoothness in my bow during the whole shot process, especially during and after the release. So just recently, I set myself to try to find that little extra softness and would like to ask two questions about that. Number one is the tillering of a recurve bow only because of the two fingers below the arrow and therefore compensating the extra bending of the bottom limb 
Or can the tillering also be a very personal preference where two people with the same draw length and hand size have different tillering just because it feels better? The answer is yes. And you need to understand tiller is not just because of the asymmetric Mediterranean release with one finger above and two below, but also hand pressure, stabilization, how much stabilizer weight, how stiff your stabilizers are, how much weight you got hanging out there if you've got a bow sight on there. So um, I would imagine like location of the grip matters because you're not holding the center of the bow or are you correct on a recurve bow? The arrow is shot through the center typically. So that's part of it. So anyway, long story short, you've got um, a number of factors and one of those factors, one of those factors is what's going on with your uh, finger pressure. Um. The other thing you're looking for, of course, is for the bow limbs to settle down more or less simultaneously so you don't have a little wobble-wobble thing going on after the shot, which is also related to hand pressure, stabilizer, a whole bunch of other stuff there. Um, second part of the question, I have a second-hand 30-inch, 10-inch uh, biter four-rod stabilizer setup with no weights. They got my hands on when I bought my RX, but sometimes I get the feeling that the front bar is not dampening my movement as much as I would like. Would adding some weight be the best option, or should I maybe have a look at a more modern alternative available nowadays? You know, the biter stabilizer is actually pretty good for what it is. Uh, it's you know, it's uh, it has a good feel because it's got basically low stiffness, and it's just like one big damper. You know, right? Yep. And some shooters, even today, does Sergio still use one? Yeah. Yeah. Last I saw, he was Sergio so. Pagni still uses one. Because he likes the feel. He likes the holding feeling with it. he gets with it. And I can't use one because it feels like it's fighting me when I'm shooting. But, you know, I know some shooters out there that shoot. Some of the German shooters still use them. And, um, you know, in its day, it was it was a good choice because it was, uh, you know, you didn't need a bunch of rubber dampers on it. It was quiet. Decent in the wind if you had it oriented right. So, you know, um, I think if your concern is the front bar is not damping your movement as much as you would like, and would adding some weight be the best option? Probably no. Probably would not help you on that biter rod. More weight would make it feel a little more lively. I don't think that would be a good idea, typically. No. Yeah, with a softer bar, adding weight is not going to work. It and, could be counterproductive. You know, Richard's in the Netherlands, so he's got access to all sorts of stuff. I'm going I'm to suggest this, Richard. Borrow somebody's stabilizer. It doesn't matter what. Solid carbon stabilizer, you know, one of the, uh, yeah, you know, just something, you know, that's comparable in length and throw a couple of uh, weight segments on the front of that thing and see if you like that better. And, you know, don't go buy something. Just go borrow something from somebody for a little while and see if you like it better. That'd be the, yeah, you got great shops there between, uh, you know, Perry's and Archery Service Center. And there's lots of, I mean, Netherlands is, the beauty of Netherlands having been to some of their shops, it's, it's uh they're all fairly close you know you're not more than what two three hours away yeah and you've got some of the world's best recurve shooters there and and a lot of them spend time and or work in the shop um okay so jeff jenkins uh is got some issues with our website he says it's still full of old information the 27 catalog 2017 catalog is out but only if you use the online pdf viewing abomination that we opted to use he says that I sue or whatever it yeah. is. Yeah, uh, and, you know, I, I hate that. I don't like that. Oh, it's I like hard it. hard to read it. You like it? I like it. I don't like it. Yeah. Anyway, he says he's uh, looking for the uh, catalog in PDF format. I thought, uh, 
Didn't JVD have the catalog online? Um, I don't know. And the download links only for the 2016s. So yeah, that sounds like a problem on our end. Yeah, we don't have the. Uh, we need to have a PDF download available. Jeff, we'll solve the, this. Uh, we'll, we'll solve this in the next few days. And sorry about the problem. Yeah, there. we'll talk to Jay. Yeah, yeah, we will talk to Jay. And um, so hopefully that'll get solved. It's you know they're still in the middle of changing half the website. So, um, so that gives us a good opportunity to uh, take a break here and a reset and. We've got a special guest. Yeah, let's bring in the Mac. The fabulous Mackenzie Mackenzie Brown. Brown. And she's here from San Diego. Uh, I'm not sure I would take that trade. right. I think I'd rather stay in San Diego, um, especially this time of year. Come on, we've got fabulous weather out there. It's probably nice to have a a little change of pace. but No doubt about it. You know, greatest city on earth, San Diego. Without any further ado, here she is, the woman, the myth, the legend. Mackenzie Brown. Yes, indeed. Mackenzie Brown, really happy to have you here at Easton today. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. So, you know, not not uh, too long ago, you were representing the United States at the Olympic Games in Rio. Yes, sir. It's it's like the opportunity of a lifetime. Absolutely. it's It's been a long time dream of mine. I've been training for six years for for this Olympic Games. I, uh, I tried out for the 2012 Olympic Games and finished eighth. Um, I was only 17 at the time, so I was really happy with my uh, results for that, but just uh, made my fire bigger to to go for that uh, actual Olympic team. And you were pretty dominant through the whole process of getting, you know, um, through the team trials process, which was a long process. Can you walk us through that path? Yeah, so it's a three-tournament process that we go through. I was first through all three events i had a uh, a good a good enough lead in the in the first event um the second event and the third event my main goal was to um continue to make that lead larger just because we only had one women's spot for team usa one that was assured by that point one that was assured for sure um and so for me i was i was definitely gung-ho for that for that spot so for me, I was just training to be to be my best, and I was giving myself attainable goals, but also goals that were just a little outside of my reach. That way, I can push myself even harder in training um, and harder in the the competition. You recommend this as a path for other people who want to follow in your footsteps? Absolutely. Um, so, so one of the things that I could suggest for someone who wants to be in the Olympics is to um, to train your mind along with your body when you're training to make sure that your your mind is um, focused on what you're doing while you're doing. It's very easy to just go out and shoot arrows and thinking lots of arrows are what's going to get you to where you want to go. And yes, lots of practice, lots of arrows is very important, but to be able to actively be thinking about that in a competition, thinking about how you're going to do it when you're at the competition that matters is really important when you're training. Otherwise, it's more or less weightlifting. Absolutely. You have to have a plan every time you're out there shooting, even if it's just a little thing, right? It's it's definitely training with a purpose instead of just training to hit a target. Let's talk about the typical day in the life of Mackenzie Brown at the Olympic Training Center before the Olympics. What was a typical training day? Let's say a heavy day. 
A heavy day was I would get up in the morning, I would go down to the range and warm up. Then I would start out at blank bale, probably shoot 50 to 100 arrows at blank bale, just getting my form warmed up and kind of waking up. I'm not <laughs> I'm not a morning person at all, so I need at least a cup of coffee and a 50 to 100 arrows to get ready. Um, then I would probably go out and play a couple of games. Um, and by games, I don't mean like haha fun games, but games that would um, challenge my brain, challenge my body. Um, challenge who I am as a, a competitor. So um, one of those is gold game that we play. One of those is uh, team round simulations, which was actually very important in our selection procedures. Um, and all of those are just kind of getting you ready to compete at the event you're going for. Because you're going full throttle the minute you step out on that stage. Yep, absolutely. Tell me about the gold game a little bit. When I was an RA, we used to play what we called the gold game, but I think it's evolved <coughs> a bit. Yeah, so the goal game right now is we we are on the line and we have a 15-second loop timer. When 11 seconds rolls around, you can lift up and shoot a shot. You shoot six arrows per end. You, get, you shoot uh, every other 15 seconds. And if it's gold, you get one point. If it's an eight, it's neutral. And if it's a seven or out, it's minus one point. And we change the goal every now and again, but usually it's to 50 points. Uh, for me, when I'm playing the goal game, I'm actually trying to score, um, but it adds that extra little bit of pressure, which I find helps a lot at, um, at competitions when I'm shooting 72 arrows for score because I'm, I'm actively just going for the gold forces you into your process every single time, right? Absolutely. And when there's a time crunch, that's what I rely on the most is to do what I know how to do, which is my form. It's actually not that different. Uh, the timing is different than when I used to do it, but it's very similar in terms of the goal overall. It's more like a shoot-off arrow every time you shoot, isn't it? It is. Um, and, and there are def definitely more ways that you can attack it just like any other event that we do um your mindset is is everything and how you how you react if you know it's going to be a short amount of time you just relax in the fact that you're going to be on a time crunch um, a lot of people have freaked out and it doesn't work out well for them when they're trying to to do well at the goal game if you have the right mindset though it can force you to a mode where you immediately can engage your focus and execute the shot because you have to have that intention when you go into it Absolutely. Um, so for for when I'm going into competitions, my training is much harder than a competition physically. Um, and my, my brain is there as well. I'm mentally engaging every shot. And so when I go to a competition, it's going to be, in my brain, it's going to be a little bit easier because I thrive in competition. I go to a competition and I shoot really well because I've made myself so comfortable with being uncomfortable that when I go to a competition, I do my thing. It's more comfortable when you're at competition, even, it, you know, we used to joke that you, you know, you, you bleed in training, so you just sweat in battle. Absolutely. Right? And there's really some truth there. Yeah. So I that agree. works well. So what's, um, what's your goals? You know, it's hard to reset maybe after going to the Olympics for some people. I, I what's your goals as you go forward now? Um, for, as far as the reset goes, I, I can agree with that to an extent because, you know, after after the Olympics, it's this big goal and you're always working towards that. And then the Olympics happens and you're like, OK, now what? 
but I knew that going into it, so I kind of had a plan past the Olympics. Um, and I, I did plan a break. I planned for myself to have some time off to process, to to move on, to, to go see my family, uh, to come see you guys. So it's it's important to to have those breaks. I think a lot of competitors are like, you know, you just got to go and do more, do more, do more. But if you don't take some time um, to let your brain kind of relax, then it, it it's counterintuitive at that point. Yeah, Steve's got a point he want to, uh, wants to make. Go ahead. So following the Olympics, uh, Zach went, Zach Garrett went to Hawaii and you came to see us. And, and I'm we're just going to put, the, I'm going to leave that and, there. And I, I, I'm personally pretty happy about it. Well, Steve, I went to Hawaii too. So See, if you follow, if you follow Mac on Twitter, on Twitter, know. Instagram, Facebook page, where do people I did follow go you? to Hawaii. Where do people follow you on, on Twitter? My biggest that? following is on Instagram. I have close to 5,000 followers on Instagram. And what is your uh, handle there? At MacBrown14. M-A-C. B-R-O-W-N. M-A-C-K. M-A-C-K-B-R-O-W-N-14. There you go. And that that is also my Twitter handle. And you can find me on um, face, my Facebook fan page. My handle is Arrowchick. It's pretty cool that she has a Facebook fan page. So um, shifting gears mm-hmm. real quick here because I, I don't know how much time we've got. Not, not a ton. See, Mackenzie is staging to go watch the famous salt pot drop in the factory, which... It's like a Vegas event. So So we're just checking the clock here. But um, I'm going to shift gears on you for a second and ask you about the state of women's archery. Okay. And let's keep it to recurve because that's Mm -hmm. what I know and I don't know much about compound and Mm -hmm. Steve can speak to that later. But what's your perspective on where we are at in terms of development of, of women in our sport and what can we do better from your perspective? Uh, from my perspective, I'm very passionate about our women's program um, because I came from it. I came from the Joad pipeline. I started in NASP archery, then found my local Joad program and moved on up through um, the Junior Dream Team program and then now MNRA. Um, so you're like a textbook case for how things are supposed to work on a certain <laughs> level, right? Yeah, that's what I've been told. So um, for, for me, I... I'm very passionate about that pipeline, but I'm also very passionate about when when women come into the resident athlete program, when women just come into archery, period, I want to help them get to where they want to go. Is and the support there now the way it should be from your perspective? From my perspective, I think we're working towards that goal. I think that things are definitely getting better from what they started at. Um, we're making a lot of moves and changes in our organization to help facilitate that. And so I think that we are are definitely moving toward a, a successful turnout. As we record this in early November, mm-hmm. the USA Archery uh, Association is uh, has opened a, uh, a job mm-hmm. for a new women's head coach. Yes, sir. The idea being co-equal with Coach Lee but focused on the women's program. Yes, sir. That sounds really like a good opportunity for somebody. It definitely sounds like a great opportunity. Uh, and and to me, I think that we need someone who is uh, who has a vision and who knows um, where we're going and how to get there as far as, as uh, going to the Olympics, going to world championships and being dominant, uh, 
uh, definitely going to World Cups and being dominant. And that's that's one of my goals. And I hope that whoever fills that position feels that same way. So do they have you and some of the other archers involved in the interview process or have they done interviews or anything like that? Or can you tell us? I don't think they've done interviews yet. I believe that they are still in the application process. Um, for me, I've I've tried to do my part as far as um, sharing my opinions with board members, sharing my opinions with the CEO, really kind of talking about what my goals are as a, um, I really don't like bragging about myself, but as someone who is on top. Nobody's going to take it that way. <laughs> Um, as someone who is on the top, I would really hope that they are taking my advice at face value. And so I, I have made my opinions readily available and love to, to talk to the people who are making those decisions so that we do get the best person in the, in the slot. And that person could be from anywhere. It doesn't necessarily have to just be an American. Absolutely. Um, the, the position is open. And so I really hope that we have someone who is more focused on how to make us work well as a team, how to create champions. That's what I think that our goal should be, is uh, is creating people who know how to work together, who now know how to support each other and, and be great. You're more or less, relatively speaking, at the beginning of what's going to be a great trajectory career-wise, in my opinion. Thank I've you. said that for a long time about you. Thank you. But down the road when you're maybe ready to do something different. Mm -hmm. Do you see yourself coaching? Do you see yourself in that kind of a mentoring position? Absolutely. That is my plan currently. Um, in December, I'm actually uh, attending the Level 4 coaching course um, with Coach Lee. So I'm, I'm definitely looking toward being a coach. And, and probably right now my goal is to be um, one of the high-level coaches by 2021. So that would be after the next games. Can I, I infer from that that your goal is Tokyo? My goal is Tokyo. Um, I said that before the Olympics for 2016. I was not done. Um, no matter what the, the outcome of 2016 was, my goal was definitely to go for another Olympics. It's, it, it's almost an um, intoxicating experience. It's such a, a crazy tournament to go to, and, and the, the ride to get there is... Uh, is awesome and um, I've been very blessed to to get to where I'm at and and how I got there absolutely and you know um, Tokyo is going to be a lot of fun absolutely I think uh, I think Tokyo is a great place for for an Olympics it's gonna be very in my head I see a very futuristic type place to go to well, the there's Olympics. a monorail that goes to where the venue is so that that'll right there. be pretty cool yeah, yeah. Um, but I I also really hope that uh, we can bring the Olympics back to the United States for uh, 2024. 2024. Yeah, that I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to that. Um, I think it'll be very good for our economy, but also very good for the United States. And for Los Angeles in general, I think. And L.A., yep. So that, uh, you know, it's going to come down to L.A. and Paris, and we'll know in a couple of years. Mm -hmm. So it'll be interesting to see how that works out. Absolutely. I imagine that what's going to happen next week may have some impact on that. With um, our election coming up. Yeah, I, I don't... Yeah. Without could getting be. into politics. It could be, yep. Well, we have an election coming up? <laughs> By the time this podcast drops, we'll all know the outcome. Is I it think. not a boxing match? 
That's what it, it seems like, it, like. It feels like it sometimes. A bit. It's sad. But here we are, and thank goodness we don't have to deal with uh, too much of that element of politics at mm-hmm. our level in sport. We're lucky that way. I, uh, I'm definitely a firm believer in keeping sport, sport, and politics, politics. And very keeping, much the case in our country. Uh, anyway. Keeping a divide between those two. I think that that's very important because um, what we do shouldn't be political. What we do should be people encouraging us to go and pursue our dreams, just like we encourage our, our kids to, to do what they want to do in sport and um you know, I'm a professional athlete and I think I should be encouraged to be a professional athlete, not worry about what one person says to affect me or to affect the person that I am friends with. I think that's stupid. Politics in in sport, in my opinion, is is a little ridiculous. Super well said. Thank you so much for joining us here. Absolutely. Mackenzie Brown, two thousand sixteen Olympian from the Rio Olympic Games, representative of the United States, getting ready to Put the bow, uh, put the quiver back on and get the bow back on the line and get ready for Tokyo 2020. And I know we'll see you there. Absolutely. She's always awesome to talk to. Just yeah. such a nice person. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I will say this, and I, you know, I've been vocal about this before. I, I think it's, it's shame. It's a lost opportunity that as far as I know, and I'm sure some, somebody will email us at podcast at eastontp.com or jump on Facebook to correct me. Um, as far as I know, she's the only successful shooter coming out of NASP, uh, getting into target archery. On the recurve side. On the recurve side, yes. The only one I know of, yeah. Yeah. That doesn't mean there aren't any others out there. but We just don't know them. But boy, there should be a lot when you consider the numbers that they kick out. Yeah, they've got like 13,000 kids coming to uh, you know, a NASP Nationals. Don't they say that they've had more than a million kids shoot NASP at one point or another? I'm sure they have over the course of... Over the course of know, the decade? Yeah, whatever. Whatever, however long they've been you know. doing it. And they're doing a great job. Don't get me wrong. It's just that I wish they would or that there could be a better system to let some of those kids have an opportunity to get into, you know, to stay with archery once they get out of NASP. So transition into a different type of archery. So with that said, though, you know, I I think that uh, those opportunities, that's a two-way street. You know, perhaps we need to do more and and the rest of the industry needs to do more to – leverage that you know and give those kids a better path to staying with the sport so anyway always great talking to Mackenzie, and uh, i look forward to uh, seeing her again soon at tournaments um you've got a question there from uh from nikki yeah we talked about this one briefly like a couple podcasts ago yeah and and there was a ton of good stuff in there and so we wanted to hang on to it for future podcasts and here we are in yeah. The future. Yeah, we felt like this one could almost have a podcast of its own. So she asked, what are some common mistakes equipment-wise you're seeing target shooters making at tournaments? Uh what products or or just during general shooting? What products are you feeling th- that people are overlooking you and you are surprised that more people aren't using them? And what are some products that you see being used at the highest level of competition that people in the US aren't adopting? Let's take those one at a time. Yeah. So the first one was what stuff, uh, what mistakes are people making, right? What what are the things people are doing that maybe they shouldn't be doing at whatever stage they're at? I'm going to say, I'm going to start out with too much stabilization. Yeah, that's the first and foremost. And it it happens all the time. People, they see Rio or Mike Schlosser or Brady with, and Brady even has is, is come off of it quite a bit, but you see guys with a pile of stabilizer weight and you think, 
I can do that too. But you know, or they don't even think I can do that too. They think, oh, that's what that must be that what must you be have the to way have. To do it, yeah. But they no. don't realize they shoot like you know two hundred arrows a week, and these guys do two hundred a day, or they're small and weak, and you know other people are strong enough to hold that weight. You know what? What I'm holding on my bow, even if I'm not practicing a lot, I have the stature to hold it. Whereas you know my buddy. Uh, who should I say? Who should I pick out here? Who are you Someone about to pick on? less, uh, much uh, smaller Gallanty. than me. Yeah, Braden's probably not going to be able to hold the same amount of stabilizer weight. It's just a matter of he just, probably could, but it wouldn't be optimal for him. No, and that's why he doesn't because he's smart enough to know what's good for him. He's not going to exactly. go load up twenty ounces on the front. I'll give you an example. Um, another example. Look at look at Kibo Bay. Mm-hmm. She's not shooting. A weight stack that's you know twenty four ounces. It's probably like four on the front and six on the back, yeah, or six at the on the most. front and four on each side. At the most, yeah. So, yeah, too much stabilizer, and also uh, too much stabilizer length. You know, I when I shot uh, back in my day, back in my day, no, when I when I used to shoot back east, I shot with a guy who was a uh, a an engineer for Bell Helicopter Textron, and. He was one of these guys that once he got some theory into his head, he would do whatever it took to prove the theory right. So he steps out there on the line one day, and he's got a 36-inch front rod, and he's got a 36-inch side rod. Oh, yeah. And a 36-inch side rod. That guy. That guy. And I'd I'd already told him what was going to happen, but he didn't want to listen. He's like, well, I've done the calculations. This is going to be better. All right you who shall not be named because you may be listening <laughs> and you who shall be put on the last target oh my word no well it didn't matter because he got through maybe five shots before the shaking got so bad that he couldn't you know execute anymore just the mass weight of the oh, bars the whole alone. thing waka yeah. waka waka it was like a giant freaking tv aerial yeah to have a 36 inch for bar, those of you that, knows, knows that type of know what tv aerials that are. long of a lever it was arm? awful it was just terrible. awful and this this was with here's the kicker aluminum stabilizer yeah yeah they yeah. weren't even carbon so uh nah bad idea all right so that's my my number one thing but the other thing is stuff on your bow because because you saw some top guy using it some top woman using it um i can't tell you how many people freaked out because they can't buy the dampers that ojin hyuk uses or used to use on the base of his limbs mm. I think I saw some stuff about that a while you know, ago. Yep, stuff like that. Keep it simple. It's not gonna. It's not gonna make you a good shooter. Keep it simple. Yeah. Don't there, go. Yeah. You know, better archery through spending. No, it's not necessary. There are core products that yes, they do matter, but you know, there's a lot of other. I'll stuff tell you. Uh, here's the stuff hogwash. that matters. Here's the stuff that matters. You need good arrows. Mm-hmm. You need good knocks on those arrows. Mm-hmm. You need a good bowstring. Yep. You need a decent arrow rest. You mm-hmm. need a good tab. Nothing else really matters. Yeah, I would say on the compound side, you need, you don't need, uh, I'm not going to say you need a good scope because really all it does is hold the glass, but you need glass and a reticle that agrees with what your mind wants to see. A reliable sight's a good thing. Well, yeah, that, of course, because if the if your sight's not clicking or whatever not moving when you click or any number of other problem sets back on the recurve side a good plunger is a great idea yeah there's uh buy once cry once yeah common mistakes other common mistakes i'm trying to think of some here i would say i see a lot of common mistakes in the bow setup 
Um, yeah. What about what about how people use release devices? Yeah, that I mean, you could you could go into that. I mean, there's a, a number of people who will say, "Well, I can't shoot a hinge, so I'm just going to punch off this this thumb button." You know, it's like, well, maybe if you took a little time to learn the hinge, you'd figure it out. And I would say you could take a little time to learn the thumb button, but I think that's a lot more difficult and eventually leads back down the the road of, you know, punching the hell out of a trigger. So, but yeah, I think, you know, Nikki's asking us what, what type of equipment mistakes are you seeing? So I'm often seeing people, um, with problems with uh, limb timing on recurves and that's a function partly of, not understanding the relationship between the stabilizer and the bow and partly a function of tiller and hand pressure. Uh, if you're getting a lot of oscillation after the shot, typically it's from feedback caused by your stabilizer. People don't realize it. And while it may be argued that it doesn't have that much of an effect, uh, it can affect your confidence because it's not always consistent. Consistency is important. So, you know, even though the arrow is way the heck down range by the time you manifest this, uh, it can affect your mental game. You know, you say limb timing. I would say cam timing, too. For uh, a number of years, people love to say, they, you know, oh, the top cam ahead on a Hoyt is the best way to do it. Like, why? Why would the Hoyt engineers design it that way? They're way smarter than any of the dorks shooting them as it comes to, you know, how it works. So wh- why would... Me saying, "Hey, Brian Gold, the uh, this your bow that you designed, top cam fast works better than how you designed that stop. Like, why would it be that way? You know, and it tends to when you do that, it tends to add quite a bit of holding weight, changes the feel on the back end. Maybe that's what you need. Maybe that's good, but I think for most people, it's not. Yep. What's the second part of Nikki's question there? Um, let me pull it up. She's got she's got basically a four part question. Right. Uh, second part was, what products are you feeling that people are overlooking and you are surprised more people aren't using them? Oh, golly. Surprised more people aren't using... To be honest, I'm actually... Uh, you know, I, I'm not I'm not seeing anything out there that has tremendous merit that I go, hmm, I wonder why they aren't using this thing. Uh, on the other hand, I'm seeing... You know, maybe this goes back to the first part of her question to a degree... I'm seeing stuff that's completely unnecessary being used by a lot of people. I'll give you an idea on the recurve side. That little pinky thing that you're seeing people put on tabs. On the tab, yeah. Terrible idea. Why is that? Okay. I, you know, if this were TV, I could show you instantly. But your ring finger and your pinky, your small finger, just go ahead and try to only close your pinky and not close your ring finger. Ring finger closes. They're they're linked. No, no no normal person can 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 work those independently without some odd condition going on. Mm-hmm. So the pressure you're putting on the pinky is actually increasing the pressure on the ring finger, which is the one that needs to lose pressure, right? You, know, you want to keep it relaxed. Yeah. You know, it's important to have it on the string. That ring finger. You know, that's kind of what Rick McKinney used to call the control finger, because you know where you're at. Right when that ring finger is touching, that's important for that thing to be on there. But uh, that that pinky thing, and then you know all this crap that they're putting on the on the on the tab, complicating it. You know, it's this is one of those 
why use four screws when 72 will do? Yeah. You know, I mean, some of this stuff is just getting out of hand. I see a lot of that. And then it's you then you silly. see a, like a Simon Fairweather tab with a molded ring and, and virtually no hardware. Exactly. It's pretty sweet. Exactly. And it's really a nice tab. So, you know, you don't need all that crap, but boy, people buy it because it looks, you know what it is? It's, it's release aid envy. It's release aid envy. <laughs> we see the cool release aids, you know, like the, uh, the honey badger claw and all this happy stuff. And, you know, all we have is our, our old, reliable 30-year-old Cavalier Master tab that's, by the way, still the highest score ever shot by a human being with a recurve bow. Used, you know, shot with that tab. But people think they got to have all this crap with the laser markings and this and that. And it's like, oh, yeah, because I'm constantly adjusting my freaking tab. I haven't moved my tab in 20-something years. I mean, I, I, I'm starting to rant. <laughs> but, but, you know, that bugs me. I, that that is like why are people using that stuff it's just you know it's crazy yeah i would say um you know going going back to what nikki had to say stuff that i i can't believe people aren't using it um probably goes away from the pure archery stuff into like the range finders i'll, I'll see people use like a what i would call a subpar range finder either doesn't read well from one target color to another or doesn't read well um, on an actual taped out target, you know? So if you're measuring 70 yards and it's coming out 71, you know, is it always one yard hot or is there a, you know, a, is it coming out hot because of target color or is it just that hot, that hot at that distance or is it percentage or, what is it, you know? And why why would you use that? So is there a rangefinder you like? The the Leopold, the Leopold is far and away the best. No doubt. The this next best one is probably a Sig Sauer. I've seen that new Sig one. It's yeah. pretty good. But um, you know, for archery stuff. Now if you're talking other stuff, like as good as well. Well, um, yeah, but we you know, we're not talking about rifle. I use a Leica for my long distance rifle shooting, but I wouldn't necessarily mm-hmm. say it's as good as the more up-to-date ones for the purpose of uh, half-yard increments. You know? Yeah, for yeah tenth of a yard or whatever. That, no. Yeah, for the archery stuff, I've always been uh, really happy with the loophole and, and pretty unsatisfied with some of the other ones I've paid money for. Okay, you know? interesting point. Um, I've got one. Field, got? field quivers. Yeah, that's true I just too. got back from Japan. and Okay, so I'll tell you the story. Um, you know, I, I had some field quivers custom made for the winners of the national championship. Right. Right. Some of the Easton elite. Are they the elite or the deluxe? I can't remember. The elite. The elite. The, the pleather ones, the nice ones. And, uh, you know, they had custom belts. They say, you know, Japan national champion or some such thing on there. The Japanese Federation guys came up to me and they're like, um, we really enjoyed the fact that you sent the quivers paraphrasing here. Thank you so much. But, uh, we can't have people using compound quivers for our recurve championship prize. And I'm like, what do you mean compound quivers? Well, only compound shooters use those. I'm like, no. No. Yes, it's true that compound shooters popularized field quivers for target archery. Mm-hmm. That's the truth. I, I'm thinking guys like uh, Dave Cousins and guys like Rio were using them, you know, before they were popular 
as before they are it was now. The norm. Before it was the norm. Yeah. But by no means as a field quiver, and hopefully everybody knows what I mean by field quiver, the kind that holds the arrows more or less vertically along your side, taking up a whole lot less space on the line, by the way. Uh, and they're, you know, they're like, oh. <laughs> so, you know, it was just one of those things where it was just the perception was, well, target shooters, recurve target shooters use traditional, you know, knocks pointed toward the target type quivers and compound shooters use that other type of quiver. But the the field quivers got so many advantages besides just space on the line, packing it away. It takes up a lot less space in your bow case. It's lighter. It's It's just easier to walk around with it's not whacking you in the thigh on every step the buck stops at space on the line everyone has shot vegas and had that guy behind him with a hip quiver and 32 inch long eastern 27 12s poking him in the butt exactly no one needs that exactly yep so i'm going to throw in field quivers as an underused i i personally mm. you know i understand why people use hip quivers i yeah. get it. you know because you want to look down and see your arrows and i get that but boy, I'll tell you, I'll never go back if, if I have my choice. Yeah, and it's funny. Um, you know, you go to an ASA 3D shoot. Like I think I was one, maybe two or three of the 1,700 people there had a quiver on. Everyone else used a chair, and I was one of them. I felt stupid. Like a chair a, with a tube attached. With to tubes, it. yeah, and and it makes total sense there. Total sense. Yeah, because you're, you're sitting, sitting around 25 minutes or so before you yes. take your shot. So. You know, I, I ended up, I took a really nice uh, backpack stool to World Field, and, and those are, a good backpack stool is probably underutilized. You know? Aurora makes one, our Aurora, friend Marco Birdie, yeah. but which, what were you using? I was using a, uh, oh, I can't remember the name of it. It's it's an outfit here out of the U.S., Sweet Seat. Okay. Is that yeah. made for fishing by any chance? Nope. It's uh, is it meant for archery? built for archery. Really? Yeah. So I don't use the quiver feature because I feel weird without a quiver on. Yeah. So, and especially if I'm going to be needing multiple arrows, you don't know what the shooting stake is going to look like in field. You know, it could be you need to have your quiver or your chair, you know, 10 yards away from you and you need three arrows. Because you're on a slope yeah. or something. Yeah, something like that. So I, I wear a quiver still, but I think for 3D, I will go quiverless. Huh. Yeah. All right. I'll try it. Okay. What's the third part of Nikki's question? Third part. Uh, what are some products that you see being used at the highest level of competition I'm assuming she means internationally, that people in the U.S. aren't adopting. So stuff that hasn't made it over to the U.S. per se. Hmm, interesting question. Um, you know, my problem is I don't get to too many U.S. domestic tournaments. All I see is international competition. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure. Uh, but I will say this. The advent of online televised international archery has narrowed the equipment gap or knowledge gap to a degree. In other words, you've got a lot of people out there who are closely scrutinizing the equipment being used by top shooters at events around the world, and they can almost do it in real time, if not in real time. Yeah. And people are making increasingly, seem to be making choices, sometimes erroneously, like we pointed out earlier, mm -hmm. based on what they're seeing top shooters using. Yeah. I mean, look at uh, the Olympic Games and... You know, I went out and counted everybody's riser, what geometry it was, whether it was, you know, traditional Earl Hoyt or, uh, you know, Hoyt HP geometry, high-performance geometry. And I, I counted Which, the by the limbs. way, just so you know, I mean, you, you probably know this. A lot of people don't realize this. Wind and wind bows 
that are at the midpoint setting are lower than a Hoyt bow at the bottom setting. In brace height? Uh, in, in terms of the geometry. Like low, okay. They're, they've already got a piece of that, quote, HP geometry going on. So they do a, a lot of folks don't realize between, that. Huh? Yeah, mm. a lot of folks just don't know that. You know, they're talking about, well, that Hoyt HP geometry is not forget. Well, people seem to be kicking butt with those win and wins just fine. So, and people, you yeah. know, I mean, the Olympic champions, you know, are shooting yeah. the HP geometry. So you tell me, I don't know. Yeah, there was, uh, but it was interesting, you know. So we counted that stabilizers. Uh, te- well, I didn't count tabs, I counted sights. And it was, uh, there were some very clear lines as to what was being used by what parties. For instance, the women typically shorter draw lengths. The majority of them were using the, the uh, HP geometry. Vast majority of them. And a ton of Shibuya sites in the women's ranks too. Like 85% or yeah. something like that. So, yeah, it was, it was interesting stuff. But um, I, will, I will agree with you. I will say the equipment gap has closed and the knowledge gap has closed. The knowledge the, gap, really, because yeah. the equipment gap, there isn't really one. Especially on the compound side. Now, what you do see, what you do see is you see regional preferences. Uh, well, here's what I mean by that. You don't see many drop angle V-bars in Japan. No. You see everybody using rubber dampers in Japan. And Korea too? And France? Yeah. You see a lot of arc system, arc system gear in France. Yep. Because it's affordable and it's a, you know, it's a company that's based in France. And so there's a lot of French archers like uh, JC Valadon using the arc system stabilizers, for example. Right. You don't see them outside France. Uh, no, not really. Um, you see, you used to see nothing but biter stabilizers in Germany. Not so much now, but yeah, you, know. you see a few of the new uh, Arctec, another German brand. Okay, yeah, so, see them in, on some German bows, but not often elsewhere. Exactly. Um, you know, the Koreans are using a mix of of Hoyts and Win and Wins for the most part. A few MKs thrown in there for the mix, but um, some other countries, uh, Japan's almost using nothing but Win and Win in recurve. Uh, except, you know, at the Nationals, f- two of the four finalists were shooting Hoyts. And there were like four Hoyts on the line, <laughs> you know, at the event. And everybody else was shooting a win and win because they've got full-time support over there. You know, mm-hmm. they got they were really working that market hard. They're doing a great job. But um, the Hoyt winners, are, the Hoyt shooters are still winning quite a lot. The um, The interesting thing to me, however, is... How many people are out there using those GMX risers still? Yes. So it took a little bit of courage for Hoyt, I think, this year to uh, decide to retire that thing. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of people asked me in particular about the the new Epic, the the replacement GMX for the replacement. GMX. Yeah, and then nice bow. I see at that competition in Korea that was you know, high dollar competition. Yeah, the hundred thousand dollar yeah. prize competition. I believe Lee Sung Yoon was using the new epic. The epic, yeah. So but in terms of Nikki's question, I think that I don't I don't see a huge difference. The the, the channels of distribution have improved so drastically that it's not hard to get your hands on something. Yeah. I would say the hardest thing to get your hands on here in the US is the Arc System release that I'm using. You like people ask me where can I get it and I go, I don't know. You know Did you pick that up in Neep? I, yeah, I did. So, I, I guess you would buy one from, uh, you know, a European based uh, retailer and have it shipped over. But, but as you of know, now you, you the, can't find them here. You look at the Koreans uh, that are shooting compound; they're shooting Apex sights. Is that right? 
Excel. Excel. Yeah. Sorry. Excel. Excel. Not Apex. Apex is a true, true glow product. Yeah. Uh, Apex is not what I meant. I meant Excel. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're shooting the uh, the Excel, not the Excel, but the True Ball, same company, uh, releases for the large for a large part. Uh, yeah, or Carter. A lot of music. Oh cars. yeah, that's right. Yeah, Jordy Jerry's say, Jerry's actually. releases are still used out there quite a lot. Yep, still popular, still with whimsical names. Yep. Last part of Nikki's question before we wrap up. So fourth part is: What are some industry things that you feel are more hype than science? What are some industry things that you feel are more hype than science? Four hundred foot per second compound bows. <laughs> Yeah, that would be a lot of hype. Um, I'm trying to think about it. There, there are a number of things that. What about? I mean, there's there's always some gadgets and gizmos out there, moving cable guards and, you know, um, strings. Strings is a big one, right? I mean, riggings for compounds. It seems to be the flavor of the week. Yeah, in terms of material, you get a lot not of... Not just material, but also makers. Oh, you know, yeah. The, the maker of the month, as it were. Yeah, those come and go pretty quick. That's the point. So, you know, you've got that factor going on. You've got uh, a lot of marketing going on uh, in some areas. But, you know, typically, this stuff is short-lived because people figure it out pretty quickly. Yeah, releases are, are another one of those flavor of the oh, month Oh, that's things, a fact. So. Those get a lot of hype, and it's like, well, what does it really do? It opens up, and the dealer slips out, and the arrow goes downrange, you know. And then six or eight weeks later, you notice, uh, if you look at classifieds, you find yeah. a bunch of releases for Yeah, sale. I mean, is there a, a a hinge is a hinge, kind of. Yeah. You find one that fits your hand, uh, is a Jamie, weight you like. and, and Jamie Van Natta shot the same hinge for like a 10-year period, something like yeah. that. Yeah, uh, and uh, yeah, you find one you like, and as long as they keep mar- making it, you just keep wearing them out. But... Um, and you know, thumb buttons is kind of the same way. I guess the, the premise of, of the new releases is, well, this is a different feel, different geometry. Something's different about this release, but there are a number of them that are hitting the market that I would say are a stretch as to what they really offer versus what the hype is behind them. There's a little bit of hype around some stabilizers to a degree. Yeah. Yeah. There's. You get some of that too. I mean, it's uh, you know, there was a popular stabilizer brand out there a few years ago, which nobody shoots anymore, and you know, it was just one of those. Um, you got to have this particular insectoid named stabilizer, or insectoid. Are you talking? Okay. Yeah. So you can figure this out. Yeah. So um, you know, if you weren't shooting one of these, you were nobody. And nobody's shooting them now, so it's like, it was oh I, yeah, it was huge on the recurve side. That's my like point. Three four years yeah, ago, yeah, and they're gone. And well, they're, they've disappeared. You know, they yeah. disappeared. So I mean, I'm just saying, you know, there's these things come and go. Yeah, so, um, there's got to be some more stuff. There has to be. I mean, we we but, probably you know, talk about this all. I the think time. the problem is we keep our we keep generally speaking our respective setups, my recurve setups and your compound setups. We aren't trying out the flavor of the week stuff too much. I haven't. I haven't changed my fundamental setup in quite a while. No. I'm not trying new stuff all the time. People send stuff to you and people send stuff to me and I'm like, yeah, I'll try it and I'll test it and I'll get back to you. It's a very short list of stuff that I've kept on. Yeah, I'm trying to think about stuff that's hyped right now. Stuff that gets a lot of hype. And there's really nothing to back it up. There's um, some stuff that gets hyped that seems to be effective. 
I, I'll say this. There's some companies touting riser material as a, a big thing, right? Alloys. Like, yes. Uh-huh. And I, I, I straight well, up asked the I'll just name names. Uh, Prime, for Prime. example, just came out with some alloy that I, it's I have to look It's 8200 series. Yeah, whatever. And it's aluminum. Yes. And it's 12 million modulus, just like all other aluminum. Yeah, so I asked Brian Gold. I'm like, what, what's the purpose of this? He goes, well, I guess it'll have you know maybe a higher yield strength, but it offers nothing in terms of stiffness or anything in bow design. No, but they did do something with their design with the two cams, you know, the, the four cams, I guess it is. Yeah. That makes some Twin track cam, difference, yeah. but the design yeah. of the riser, not the, so much. Yeah, the material, you know, take that versus 6061, or a lot of people, PSE had a bow made out of 7075, and they thought, oh, this is the ticket, and it's like, well, not really. Well, you find out that the 7075 is more brittle and, yeah. you know, has some other characteristics, and ultimately, it's all aluminum. Yes, so that was that was a, a thing I... I thought of. Yeah, there's a bit of hype about that. There's been a bit of hype. Um, I'll call out win and win a little bit. They just introduced a limb that they claim has graphene in it. Oh, yeah, but it's really like an insignificant amount. Well, I mean, my goodness, you, you know, industrial graphene is just not a non-starter right now. You just don't, you know, you don't have it for a sporting goods application. So I'm not saying they're lying, but I am saying that if it's in there, it's in there in a very minimal and non-functional method. And apparently they've gone to nothing but foam limbs this year. Hmm. On the other hand, Hoyt, Hoyt brought out their bamboo core limb, and um, you know they're making some pretty good claims about that that seem to be supported by the people using the mm-hmm. thing. Um, still have the foam limb, and so you have you still have your choice there. Um, some companies are out there doing good stuff and not hyping it. Yeah, I think MK's limbs are pretty good limbs, and you don't hear much about them. You know, risers, uh, yeah. risers, not so much. Risers are not reliable, but the limbs are pretty good. Yeah, I, uh, on my own personal page, I, I hyped up a new feature on my new Hoyt Prevail. Oh, yeah, the locking thing? Yeah, the locking uh, rear stabilizer. Pretty clever, actually. I'm not going to say it was my idea, but it was my idea. Okay. Uh, doing it that way. I wouldn't way. have said it was clever if I'd known that. <laughs> I was actually complimenting our friend Brian Gold. Well, that was actually, I think, done by Jeremy L. Okay. And... Uh, yeah, he, he did it different than I had suggested. And I'm like, well, you know, no one's hyping that like, hey, this is going to make you the best shooter ever. Actually, everybody ever. that I've seen talking about the Prevail ends up talking about that feature. Really? Well, it's it's a nice feature. Who hasn't had a, a stabilizer Go mount? Go ahead and explain the feature. Yeah, it's just a it's a dual bolt stabilizer mount. And you get a, you know, you buy a mount that goes specific to that. Um your other mounts will work still if you don't want to buy it. But if you do want to have this feature in use, you buy the one made specific for it. Uh, you bolt it in with your 5 24. You put in a quarter 20. It locks it down. Perfect. Doesn't rotate. Can't move. It's awesome. And it's a simple thing. Simple thing, you know. And I, I wonder in bow design, you know, I think little features like that are going to become the difference makers, the little features, fit and finish, those types of things in the coming years are going to be the ones that uh, that matter. I think the, the technology we have now, it may be a number of years before the materials catch up and can outpace the designs. I think that the, um, the fact remains that people are always going to be looking for that extra edge because in the end, our game is still a mental game. 
it's still a game that is decided partly by confidence. And confidence is a factor that you can enhance with certain feature sets, certain amounts of fit and finish. You know, just making something nice can make somebody happier to use it, and that can help. Mm-hmm. So I think what we're going to see is continued refinement, continued improvement in fit and finish. We're going to see uh, that bar continue to go up. I don't know about, you know, arrow speeds changing a whole lot. I don't know about that kind of performance-based stuff happening uh, quickly in a meaningful way, meaning that you can use it day in, day out in competition under pressure. Mm-hmm. You know, square cams are not going to be comfortable no matter what we do. But, um, you know, I, I think generally speaking, we're, we're way ahead of where we were 20 years ago. Yeah. And, you know, for everything that is what I would consider overhyped, it, it may have something behind it. You know, I was thinking about uh, some stuff that came out a couple of years ago, like the Matthews no cam. That was interesting. You know, people would go, hey, it's got no cams. Like, well, it's still got two round things on top. Yeah, it pulls super smooth, extremely smooth. I thought it was an awesome marketing job. I did too, you know, but if you if you looked at the physics behind it, it was just a really slow cam, right? So just make take a fast cam, turn the poundage down, you've got the same thing. Yeah. Botex power disc, same thing. You know, they said, oh, if you have the disc in, there's three settings, changes setting, changes the draw force curve. Well, so does, you know, drop the poundage and whatever but but i'll tell you where that has merit is with a dealer you know dealer puts it on the slowest setting so it feels really good they put it on the shelf and go it can go this fast this is how fast it can go but here it is set so you'll like shooting it yes guy buys the bow decides he wants to turn up the speed you know he moves his power disc and he goes hey this feels like garbage or he's at this point shot the bow enough where he's like oh i can yeah i can handle this but it's an interesting thing there there is that's that's hype with some, uh, with some science behind it. But it can go either way. The uh, new cam on the Prevail, the, uh, are you using that SVX cam? The SVX, yep. Which, pe- which peg are you using on it? Oh, man. There's I'm, two options, yeah, right? Yeah, I've tried like, I've tried both. I don't know yet. When I got in the shoot-off last week, I felt like it was too hard. And I would occasionally, um, when, what, I, what I feel like is when a, when the wall is too hard, I get a lot of vertical bounce. I, I move up and down, and it's typically down. And I had two arrows miss low. Um, totally me, you know. That's just how my shot is going to work with a, a really hard wall. So I'll probably go back towards the middle. Now, it, conversely, if it's too soft, I'll push them out the top, which I did in Mexico when I had it set in the middle. So. I actually have an idea. I think I might put the one, the hard peg in the middle, take the rubber off the rubber peg. So it's just the spindle, just the aluminum spindle or whatever that's made out of steel. I don't know what, and, and put that in the bottom. So I have like a, a two piece wall, you know, it's a two stage, it's two stage wall. All right. It's something to try. Well, sure. I mean, you know, that's how you, that's how things get developed. Yeah. So you, you just keep working until you're happy with something. It's just going to be a matter of time before people figure out that, uh, you know, one of these configurations feels better than the other, and there's going to be a consensus out there probably. Yeah. And feel is, is uh, so, like we talk about. Very subjective. Yes, yeah, so subjective. You can't measure it per se. So it's just one of those things. People are going to, they're going to find their own path. 
Do you see that uh, we've got the 140 grain tungsten point out now? It's a rumor. Yeah. You see that I'm not recommending it for X10s. I saw that, yeah. Yeah. I put out a blog post on eastnarchery.com to explain why. Um, we're just not getting good results with that much point weight from any of our recurve staff. Yeah, we touched on this when we touched on the, the new product. Yeah. But, you know, then there was some discussion yeah. elsewhere in the Argument. interwebs. <laughs> yeah, about how we're stupid and, um, you know. Which we may be. <laughs> yeah, we probably are. But we do test stuff. Yeah. And, and it's not like it was just, you know, you or me out shooting it. It was mother freaking Ojin Hyuk, dude. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> Takaharu Furukawa. <laughs> Put that in your pipe and smoke it. So, you know, bottom line is um, there will be available starting in January and um, all the other stuff in the new line. You know? Yeah. January introduction. Looking forward to that. We've got ATA show coming up in just another month and a half. How often do you see a company say, here's our new product. We don't recommend it for you. Well, we're just being appropriate here. Yeah, if someone's going to spend, you know, 250 to $300 on points, I would hope we'd at least lead them down the right path. Well, what I'd like is for them to be happy when they get done with the whole right. experience. They don't want to have some, you go, well, these 140 grain, because no one, no one is going to buy a 140 grain point and want to break it off down to 100. Of course not. You're going to go, look at all this tungsten. Yeah. Free. Exactly. You know what I got to do is I got to come together, I got to come up with the somehow magically screws together segments for the <laughs> on that little tiny yeah on that yeah. little tiny and somehow make that work no that's never going to happen but um you know that's the alternative the um the fact remains you get pushback when you when people hear about that it's like well i heard that the 150 grain point works good well no you don't see any koreans using it do you you don't see you don't see brady using it do you Brady asked us to make a 80 to 100 gram point. Exactly. So, you know, be careful what you wish for. Yeah. On the other hand, I think that it's going to rock for some of the compound guys. Yeah, I'm going to give it a run. Absolutely. A run. Absolutely. So, all right. You got anything else to get off your chest before we wrap it up for the day? Uh, no. Um, you know, my, my nephew had a Pinewood Derby competition this week. And nobody. I, I helped to build the car. Uh, the car was faster than his previous year's car, but I mean, we said we were running in like the 3.22, 3.23 range. The winner was at 3.11. So I've got to find a way to shave, you know, a 10th of a second off his time. You so, need to explain what the Pinewood Derby is for the 90% of our listeners who aren't American. They need to Google it. I can't explain Pinewood Derby and its significance, especially okay. here in the in state America, we've got a thing called the Boy Scouts. Yes. And in the Boy Scouts, you have a thing called the Pinewood Derby. Which involves building a little toy car and ring it down a ramp. Yep. Okay. And it's a, it's pretty much a and major review as there a parent. Rules. Yeah. Or you know, as a man, like whoever's whoever's helping him. Like my brother and I were, we weren't we weren't upset that his car was better than last year's, but we were upset that you know he was tenth place. We narrow, take that as a personal <laughs> narrow wheels. Well, you, you you can't. Oh, there's a limit. Yeah, you can't actually oh, it's modify a standard the, kit. the wheel. Standard kit. Yep. So you. You can, you can't, you can't change the width of the wheel. You can bevel the edge of the wheel, which helps as it's riding the rail. That was what I was, yeah. So I designed a car to ride the rail, right? And most national champions are rail riders, but they're also racing on extremely good tracks with no, no uh, bumps. Yeah, no bumps, no seams. You know, they're seamless. 
these tracks that you get here in Utah, they charge you like a hundred bucks to rent it, you know, for the whole night. And they like send the guy with the software. That's what they're, I mean, it's a person and the track. So it's like like a speed trap. There's a speed trap at the end of the track. Yeah. So anyhow, um, the problem is most of these tracks are not seamless. As the pieces are laid down together, you you might get a small, uh, you know, bump or whatever. And that can lead to, uh, degradation of a, a rail rider over time and sure enough his car got slower every every pass so uh lesson learned we'll uh when we're helping him build his car next year we'll help him in a different way but the kids build the car it's very important to know that the kids build the car size d sd's rocket motor yeah <laughs> there's a whole south park episode about this oh that i'll have to go look at yeah that's <laughs> pretty good stuff you know, the trouble with South Park is it's like YouTube. Once you look at one episode, you end up going down the rabbit hole. It's Yeah, it can be that way. Yep, that's how it can be. All right. So questions, comments, arguments. Tips on Pinewood Derby. Any of that stuff, please email us at? Podcast at EastonTP.com. Contact Steve on social media using Twitter at? Steve Anderson 88 I check that once a month. And your Facebook? Oh, it's Facebook got Facebook dot com slash Big Cat Archery, and you're you're at G Techmachop. Yeah, right? but unlike Donald Trump, I'm cutting back on my Facebook use. Or, on, sorry, I don't have your, Facebook on your Twitter. I'm talking about Twitter. Yeah, I'm I'm cutting back on Twitter. Really? Yeah, there's just too much upsetting stuff on there. That's kind of the world we live in today. There's just too many too many uh, uncivil people. Yeah, the world we live in. Pretty much. But fortunately, we're in a very civil sport. This is true. It brings uh, brings worlds together. I guess we'll see just how how together when we see how the uh, dress code and doping control go over at Vegas this year. Oh yeah, yeah, I forgot about that. There's a lot of agita starting to develop out there over this. It's interesting. Yeah, well, I, I registered finally. I paid my five hundred dollars. That reminds me, I need to start practicing, and I need to send in my registration. That yep. Yep, better better get on. I don't that. think it's going to cost me five hundred dollars though. No, not for recurve. I think it's like three. Nope. Nope. But I still have doping control. Still have to pee in the cup. I still have to blow through the breathalyzer and uh, do whatever else they tell me to do. It's all good. I'd like to be in the position to have to worry about it. Yeah, that would because they be, probably uh, are only going to test medalists anyway. Yeah, that would be that'd be a great problem to have. I'd be all about that. That would be a good problem. Pee right in that cup. Pee end all over sh- that cup. End of show for sure. <laughs> end of show. End of show for sure. <laughs>